As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It is Henry Zamoda, and today we will be joined by Joe Solis Mullen. And Joe's going to be coming on, and he is going to be talking about his favorite books, which honestly is going to be a lot more interesting than you think it is, because it always is fun to learn about new books. And Joe's awesome. And um, basically, what happened? Danny, Danny's not going to be on today's show. Danny's traveling. And um, I am currently in the process of moving. So today is May 18th as I record this introduction. Joe and I recorded this show a couple of days ago before I moved. And uh, Joe Joe actually came on a short notice as a favor uh, because um, Danny and I's schedules are just swamped. Um, my schedule, I just moved into my house we are expecting the countdown is coming. So Monday, this upcoming Monday. So the 22nd is my wife's due date for our first. So everything is happening so fast right now. And, um, you know, it's, it's difficult, needless to say, to prioritize putting out podcast episodes of Bro History. So um, I told Joe that uh, Joe being a father understood that and he and he kind of jumped at first swim to just have a conversation that we would honestly have off air anyway. So I figured, hey, Joe, why don't we just record this? And you're an excellent book recommender. So why don't we just talk about your favorite books? And I think people will get a lot out of that. So uh, Joe is awesome. And another thing, I just want to give fair warning. So we're obviously going to try to put out episodes over the next couple of weeks. It's going to be hard. I'm just being blunt about that. It's going to be difficult to find time to record with the new little one coming. And uh, with the new house, we still have a little bit of, well, not a little bit. I wish it was a little bit. We still have work to do here. So um, we're going to try our hardest. But let's just say if there's a week or two weeks where there is no episode, None of us, there's nothing that went wrong, just a little bit of, you know, prioritizing family, which is always necessary. All right, I will spare you the details of my personal life, and let's get on to the show. I really appreciate you doing this on short notice, too, because yeah, no it's worries. actually, I'm, I'm happy it's, to. It's, it's kind of beating, it's, um, and we can kind of just like start it, like roll into the show or whatever, use this as part of the inter banter. This is a conversation that I think I wanted to have with you regardless, even if we weren't recording it. So I figured, well, I need to focus. I need to make sure that I get an episode out next week because, uh, you know, we have the baby coming. We're moving. We're not going to have time. I'm not going to have time to do any pre preparation for an episode. So, but I also wanted to talk to you about historians 
because you're an excellent book re- uh, book recommender. Well, thanks. Thanks. I do you, read you a are... lot. I do read a lot. And my PhD is actually in history, so came to the right place. I, I tried to do a nice smattering of... I spent some time putting together a nice list of books for us to talk about, authors to talk about. Oh, nice. And uh, yeah, I, try, I tried to do a nice collection of, you know, popular historians, uh, a few who are maybe more specialized, and then I tried to do some who are statist, what I would call statist historians, others that I would call like more libertarian anti-statist historians. And then of course, Eric Hobsbawm, who is a, who is a Marxist. So, well, that was interesting because I've heard of Eric Hobsbawm before. I've had some of his books lying on my shelf and I had never, I never read them. I knew, I always knew that he was like a renowned historian, but I never got up and I I didn't even know his backstory of him being a Marxist. I actually found out all of this within the past like 10 days or, or 10 days, whenever you texted me to, for that reference. Yeah. And just to give everyone a, 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 just a, a reason for this episode, what kind of inspired it is that I've been working on this Russian revolution podcast for like six months at this point. And I've been looking for like something super minor like some kind of weird detail that you guys probably wouldn't even give a shit about. And I've been asking, it's, it's something about the Bolshevik and Menshevik split. And, um, like what was the sectarian line between it, between, um, the, basically the bun, the Jews of it. And then, the the non-Jews of the Bolshevik. And, and I've been looking for some sources. So I asked Joe, I said, Hey Joe, do you know anything about this subject? And do you know any writers? And then you recommended Eric Hobsbawm and the age of empire. And I've had this book for 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 a long time and I never picked it up. So I'm like, okay, well I'll just look for this book. And then I started reading through some of the chapters and I was like, oh well I really should start from the beginning. This is like a holistic book of like an entire era. So I can't just start from the Russian Revolution chapter. And then I ended up reading this book that's a dense subject matter book within a couple of days. And that's like not my usual reading speed. It's not usually that fast. But um, I just kind of came with the impression that this is one master historian. I was like, wow, this is something that's kind of putting my research back now, because now I feel like I have to, I lack the holistic view to even do a Russian Revolution podcast at all. So now I want to go back in time and start reading his first book, which is uh, Age of Revolution, which I just which I just picked up. So you have helped me, but also set me back at the same time, Joe. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That certainly wasn't just, my intention. <laughs> just, just a simple book recommendation. No, but I, I'm so happy that you actually um, brought that to my attention. And I guess I'll start this off, and, 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 and then I'll also preface this as well, that I had no idea that he was a Marxist writer. It wasn't until I did a good old Wikipedia. It's like, oh, who, like, who is this man? Like, what era does he belong to? And it's like, oh, he was a Marxist. And he was a Stalinist. I guess in, in my case, I was just kind of blown away by the holistic worldview or view of it. Um, I don't really care what, you know, sec, you know, political sectarianism he belongs to. Um, it's just a good writer. But yeah, sorry about that. I just wanted to introduce that and kind of give the reason for, for this show. So you're an excellent book recommender. Where do you start? Maybe maybe add some some context to Eric Hobsbawm or well sure I can give a little bit of books. extra context to, to Eric Hobsbawm um, because I do think he's a fabulous historian. He he has a trilogy, um, Age of Revolution, Age of Capital, and Age of Empire, and these books I, I have one of them right here. Uh, I'm not going to belabor everyone by going through point by point things, but 
he essentially divides uh, the period 1789 to 1914. He essentially looks at that as what he calls the long 19th century. And so if you Google long 19th century, it will come up. I'm sure Eric Hobsbawm's name will be mentioned. He essentially sees a lot of continuities through that period. And he essentially lays them out. And so the age of revolution uh, starts you off with, of course, the French revolution. And he breaks each of his books down uh, in, in the same way. Uh, basically, <laughs> developments. So the precursor things. So the world in 1780, the Industrial Revolution, the French Revolution, nationalism. So he's got an introduction to nationalism. He's got a chapter on the different revolutions that were taking place at the time. And then he has results, part two, land, uh, you know, the meritocracy, uh, ideology, religion, secularism, the arts, sciences. And then his conclusion is always towards, you know, the next section, the next book that was coming. And so, of course, uh, the age of revolution ends in 1847. And so towards 1848, uh, springtime of the peoples. Um, they're terrific books. They're terrific books. He is, he is a, he is a dyed in the wool Marxist, communist, Stalinist, uh, believes that even with all the millions of people who were killed, that it was worth trying. I mean, to the very end, he was unapologetic. Um, I think those books are splendid, absolutely delightful. He wrote a fourth book, uh, now, he wrote the these this trilogy starting in the 60s uh, and then 70s. And I think Age of Empire came out in 1982. I don't, I don't have it right in front of me. But he eventually wrote a fourth book to go with it called The Age of Catastrophe, which I, I think is, is also a good book, but I don't think it's a great book. I think he has trouble viewing certain things with the same kind of objective detachment that he does in his prior books, which is understandable. He has a real dog in this fight. He's a committed ideologue. Uh, and so, of course, the age of catastrophe covers 1914 to 1991. And so, uh, you know, and it, it makes sense. It's, it's more difficult to write about times you lived in, especially when you are a very fierce ideologue yourself. So uh, it's not that I would discourage anyone from reading it, but certainly uh, the age of revolution, the age of capital and the age of empire really give you, like you said, a, a really holistic view of the period. Everything from waving flags, the creation of nationalisms, you know, the, the bringing to life of those, the consequences of Napoleon, uh, the new woman, uh, industrialism, all that great stuff. And he's got a couple of really good chapters. If you're a World War One buff, you know, you want to know more about, uh, you know, World War One leading up to that. He's got several fabulous chapters uh, in Age of Empire uh, that that really set you up for that really fabulously. And, and so, yeah, I have no problem reading someone who, who brings what he brings to the table. And he's, he's obviously incredible, uh, very well-read, voluminously well-read, has the best quotes. Uh, and then he also wrote one other book that I would point out. It's, it's a collection of essays called On Nationalism. It's, it's, a, bit, it's a bit denser. It's a bit more academic. Uh, but if you're interested in nationalism, it's a book just on case studies in, in nationalism. So that's what I would say about Eric Hobsbawm. He's, he's my Marxist who, who I brought to the table today. I tried to bring a good, a good wide variety, but he's one of my absolute favorites. 
Yeah, I mean, I do like Marxist writers, or or at the very least, left you know, very left wing writers. I mean, just Noam Chomsky, uh, for example, or I'm a big fan of Norman Finkelstein. Um, you know, they are really hardcore Marxist leftist, or I don't know what I don't actually don't know what Chomsky calls himself now, but. Norman, Norman Finkelstein definitely, certainly does call himself a Marxist. He called himself a Maoist for many years. Yeah. <laughs> and his books are great. His books are awesome. Um, so no, no political ideology has a monopoly on good writers. Uh, not at all. It's they're 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 across the spectrum. So we got we got um, Eric Hobsbawm as as our as our Marxist on the table. Mm-hmm. So how about how did you break this down? So Marxist, libertarians, conservatives, and some and some statists, some some true statists, uh, a more conservative and a more liberal one. Okay, uh, so, so we got four. I, I actually have one, two, three, four. I, you know, I didn't really think of it in terms of like really strict categories, but I wanted to make sure that I had, you know, some anti-statists, some statists and some, you know, leftists, some rightists, you know, a little something for everyone. Uh, okay. And I will, I will give any, uh, you know, any prefaced remarks I need to, uh, with regard to any of these, because I, you know, for example, I, I have on here several, um, from, from the Oxford series of American history, which while I have some complaints with them, I have complaints with all of these books, general, some of them more than others. Um, but there are some that I do think, you know, if you are going to read one book, you know, not everyone has the time to sit there and read 20 books on a single decade that happened 200 years ago. And so what I tried to do is say, well, all things considered, if I had to give you one book, what book would I give you or what series of books would I recommend? So, and then I did pick some specific authors, you know, because there can be a lot, a lot of good things that come from reading one author because you start to understand what, what perspective they bring to the table because history is an ideological exercise. That's not to say that it's, you know, BS or all propaganda, but it is a selective process. It is an inherently selective process. So in that sense, it is ideological. So that's what I like doing. I like to read one author to death and try to like really pick up what he's saying or understand like the points that well, he or she is saying, because there's great female writers too. I don't want to override that, but it's um, I think that's a good strategy. But yeah, you're right. No one really has time to I mean, it, it's it's hard to read book after book on the same subject to pick up like all these different worldviews to see if you can if you miss something. When you read a book about or when you keep on reading books about the same subject, you'll also notice like a lot of them are just kind of use the same footnotes. And, you know, they'll all refer back to like one single book or or so. And um, a lot of, you know, you'll kind of hear the story over and over again. So you're just trying to find that one unique spin on it that's different, that makes you kind of, makes your light bulb click. But I guess um, in terms of, um, let's go, let's talk about conservative writers. Do you, I mean, do you, do you like conservative writers? Let me, let me ask you that question first. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm a libertarian, so. I mean, my preferred camp is the classical liberal historian, you know, along the lines of Ralph Rako, uh, who you and I have talked about previously. But, yeah, I, I have no objection to reading any historian as long as they bring facts to the table. I don't I don't hold anyone's ideology against them. So. So 
in my, I'll give you, and this is something I said last in our last episode we recorded, and we were talking a lot about Thomas Sowell. So in my opinion, Thomas Sowell is the greatest conservative writer ever. And conservatism as a whole doesn't have that many great writers. So I don't know if that's say a statement that you would agree with or disagree with, or I mean, and I'm when I say conservative, I'm excluding all the libertarians. I'm not including like any libertarian in that. I'm talking about like people associated with the Heritage Foundation in some way or another, or or groups like it. Yeah, I would have to mull that over. I mean, Thomas Sowell is certainly influential, and he's certainly a good writer. I have several of his books actually on the shelf here. Um, I guess I tend to think of him more as an economist. I've not really thought about him in, in terms of uh, being an historian, although he does write historical books, obviously. So, and he's certainly influential. Uh, I, I might be able, I might be willing to sign off on like living, living historians. Although I don't know, there's so many. It's hard. It's hard to pick just one. Uh, but well, I'll tell you what. I mean, I can give you a couple of the names, other names I have off the list here. And you can tell me what you think of these. Um, you mentioned women historians. This is one that I put on here. She's super popular. And most, and I put her on here because a lot of people, especially who are interested in popular historians, have read Guns of August. Uh, Barbara Tuckman. She's a terrific historian. She's a narrative historian. Really good storyteller. Guns of August is probably the most cited book, you know, if you ask someone, hey, have you read a book about World War One? If they say yes, you, you have safe money betting it was Guns of August. She's a terrific writer. She's very thorough and she's a really good storyteller. Well, she has two other books that I highly recommend to people. Um, the first one is a collection of essays and it's called The Proud Tower. And it, it's she wrote it as a companion piece uh, to the guns of August. And I actually, I have it sitting here. I pulled some of these books off the shelf, um, because I wanted to be able to cite some of these interesting, what it, what it basically is, is it's laying sort of the context for world war one, uh, digging into really specific, um, things like the rise of anarchism, uh, sort of the insecurity of, of the English patrician class. Um, it has, she has a great essay in here on the United States uh, from 1890 to 1902. So sort of covering what I think is one of the most important periods of American history, which I know so far I've, I've only mentioned European historians and European history, but I, I do have a, a great collection of, of American uh, related texts here. Um, but that the, it's called the end of a dream. Uh, and it's it's very very good. I, I think it's really the beginning of, of sort of the the beginning of the end of the republic. Uh, and I don't mean in that in any sort of grandiose way. I just say it as sort of a matter of fact. Um, just the the institutions, the way the country was governed, and ideologically, it was just far different afterward. Um, yeah. So uh, and then the last one. This this one's actually really interesting. Um, it's called the Distant Mirror. And it's a book she wrote uh, about the uh, the 14th century, uh, which was just a a wild time, a wild time. Uh, of course, this is the Hundred Years' War, uh, the Black Death. Uh, I mean, it's it's really an incredible period, and you you struggle to even get into the 
mindset of a person who was living in Europe at that time. Uh, I mean, this is pre-Copernican, uh, pre-Protestant revolution, uh, reformation. I mean, it's very, we're only, uh, you know, 150 years from the last crusade. I mean, we're in the high middle ages and, uh, that you can find the seeds of modern Europe there in the high medieval period, uh, for example. And th that's why I recommend it is because I, my, my initial studies in history were about the formation of European nation states. And if you look at the high middle ages, you can find, uh, the seeds of, of those initial, uh, you know, proto-capitalist, um, specific rights, uh, the free cities, basically, you know, the needs of warfare driving centralization and also causing fragmentation. Uh, it's, it's a very, very interesting piece. So Barbara Tuckman, Guns of August, The Proud Tower and the Distant Mirror. Uh, any of those I would recommend to people uh, who are interested uh, in so that. the distant mirror. So I think that's what that's what I'm going to put on my on my. Uh amazon list right now my kindle list because i've read guns of august before but um but she is a great historian um uh, so i don't so that's a big blind spot for me the 14th century it's like i i really don't know anything about the midi the medieval ages or the high medieval ages um i'm completely ignorant to to that period of time all i really know in the 14th century is that well braveheart didn't even take place in it right that braveheart no, took place no, in the late 13th before, century yeah. right it and was. Braveheart was all fuck. Braveheart was all like you know, the most fake history of the fake history, right? If, <laughs> if you ever look at it, it's they a great movie. Liberties. But they <laughs> really, they really yeah. took liberties. No, a um, good companion piece to the distant mirror then that could kind of connect you to the rest of the history that you that you're familiar with is Charles Tilly. I didn't put him on here because he's not strictly an historian, but he wrote a book, Capital Coercion and the Formation of European States. So it's from like 990 to, I think, uh, I can't remember the day. I, I didn't write it down here. But as you were saying that, I was kind of thinking, yeah, the distant mirror is kind of an outlier there. Because, I mean, we're pre-Reformation, pre pre-Renaissance. And it's, there's not really another book here that links those up. But, yeah, Charles Tilley's uh, Capital Coercion and, and Europe, the Formation of European Nation States, is uh, European State Formation, is, is really a, a good bridge there. Um, it's a much more theoretical book. It's not as concerned with history. It's it's much more picking and choosing there. So, but it, it is it is a good a good book if you're interested in in connecting those developments from the high medieval period to uh, you know maybe the early 1700s. You know when it's like okay, there's France and you know. That's a, a recognizable kingdom. There's Spain, you know, there's the Holy Roman Empire, there's England, you know, Europe looks recognizable now. It's not the medieval mess um, that it was then back in the 14. There's no more Dane laws. Yeah, it's 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 one thing that I, I really think is, is important to understand about about the process there in Europe is. Is just how fragmented those kingdoms were and just how divided authority is. And we look at states today, it's an unbelievable concentration of power that's 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 occurred in basically the last couple hundred years. I mean, these are very, very abnormal 
intensely powerful centers that can command so many resources. And it's why the wars were so destructive in the 20th century. Um, if you look at it, well, like I said, if you look at the distant mirror, there are whole chapters devoted to how did the Lord uh, go fight some battles? How did the, you know, quote unquote king, you know, how did how did they get their troops to go fight battles? It was very difficult. It was very difficult for even the most powerful nobles to project power. <laughs> Everything from, uh, you know, arming guys to borrowing money to lack of roads to, you know, uh, it, it was just a, it's why wars were just not as, uh, I wouldn't say not as violent. Uh, they certainly did not produce anywhere near the casualties um, uh, that the modern wars do, obviously. Although I would not say it was not because they were not as bloodthirsty. You can certainly look at the behavior of a lot of those troops. Uh, you know, in the Hundred Years' War, for example, one one common uh, technique for weakening your opponent was to attack their peasantry. You know, cripple their their peasants so they couldn't work and produce as much. So I mean, it's pretty horrible stuff. I, I don't want to, you know, make it. I feel like a lot of libertarians, especially, tend to idealize you know, the pre-modern period as, you know, this sort of utopia. Twas not. Twas not. Wait, what 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 do they idolize? The pre modern like so libertarians what the... I idealize the, the pre modern period because things were so decentralized. Power was so diffuse. Authority uh -huh. was so diffuse. And it's true, it was. But that doesn't mean that you were not living under a local tyranny. You very much were oftentimes, more often than not, certainly. So, and if you read the distant mirror, you will you will find exactly that. Um, there's another great uh, great book on on the Thirty Years' War that's that's escaping my memory now, uh, but I, I could send it to you to put in the show notes if you want. But that 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 is just a horrifying conflict, and and you know obviously that takes place uh, in the seventeenth seventeenth century. Uh, in the 1600s so you know 200 years later but i mean we're talking millions and millions of people dying in central europe in this conflict uh often in very horrible ways uh so yeah uh, starvation and and plague and i mean starvation disease uh you know crops being completely burnt down um yeah it was an absolutely horrible horrible war and all of these guys were were mercenaries for the most part like this was before you know the concept of a of a of a standing army these were all hired guns i think almost every single one of these soldiers who died in that war well i mean first and foremost most of the people who died in the 30 years war were not soldiers they were just you know random peasants yeah no you raise a good point there though all but the swedes the swedes were the first ones to have a you know quote unquote professional recognizable like national army yeah, everyone else was using, you know, mostly conscripts. I mean, there were, there were still obviously your retainers and things like that. But yeah, so in some ways it could, but, it, it, you know, so it could limit casualties in the sense that these guys didn't really want to fight to the death. You know, they wanted to live to fight another day, literally to get paid. But also, you know, when the pay was not forthcoming, uh, that army could really turn into a Huh. A, a pox on your land, you know, as they took uh, what they were owed, if you know what I mean. So there were many instances of that. Yeah. And, and my favorite thing about the 30 year, well, it's not my favorite thing, but one of the things I find the most interesting about that period of time is that is the way that it's portrayed now. 
people always portray it as just like this kind of religious war. And um, it's the it's a war that it's like, why are these people fighting? Like it, it's it's often one of those case studies where some kind of militant atheist will be like, well, this is why religion is bad. Because when people disagree over minor things, in this case, so the argument of uh, do you need a you know a church in a hierarchy to speak to God, or do you do you have a direct relationship with God? Maybe the disagreement started out like that, but it certainly was a political war rather than a religious war. And by the end of the Thirty Year War, it was certainly a geopolitical war where major players were 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 you know using proxies to fight each other and um, ultimately damage each other's states. So yeah. I always find yeah. that is kind of like a, a false equivalency when when um it's very I always compare the thirty year war with the um the religious wars in the twenty first century in the Middle East between Sunnis and Shias. Yeah and I've Iraq heard articles and, like and, that too. And with the outside powers basically just fighting it out like on their poor territory. And the Thirty Years War was basically a bunch of other proxies, you know, fighting it out on German territory. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think that's a good parallel. Uh, the era of Cardinal Richelieu. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Yes, he was actually the one who, because initially it really was a fight over, over. well, I'm not even going to get into what the war was actually over initially, but it was a fight among Germans, quote unquote, um, you know, but then someone reached for an outside sponsor. And so someone else reached for an outside sponsor. And when you draw in, especially the French, who were exceedingly powerful and Richelieu, uh, who, who came to the fore, as you said, I mean, he really understood that conflict as being a very low cost way of increasing French power. And uh, he did a masterful job there. He was he was a little ahead of his time there. Uh, I think we should all be glad that he had to fight with pre-modern uh, means. <laughs> uh, but if I, I'll tell you what, if I had to pick one book for people to read, because obviously we've rattled through here, one, two, three, four, five, six, five, we've rattled through like six or seven books here. If you had to read one book for like 
the European history period that, that we've been talking about here. This guy is not by any means my favorite historian. He is a straight up statist, no doubt. But and it's an it's an older book. It's actually from 1987, I think, was when the first edition came out. But it's a classic. It's the Rise and Fall of the Great Powers by Paul Kennedy. Um, you're gonna find this book basically in every graduate program you you can look for, and it is actually really really good. Uh, it starts in 1470, 1470, I believe, and then runs all the way up to the 1980s. So the last chapter is kind of funny because he's like, you know, the Soviet Union and its contradictions, you know, just kind of speculating about what's going to happen, you know, in the near future. Uh, so that, that can be fun. But that's one book where, you know, he really takes you through. And especially if you're interested in kind of power transitions, you know, people talk about, you know, are we in a moment right now where one international system the unipolar system is being rearranged to a more multipolar system if you're interested in stuff like that the rise and fall of the great powers would be a great single book for any listener to read because you can hear about how the spanish empire was created how it gradually you know was eclipsed how the dutch started to have their day how they were eclipsed why the french never really got you know got going you know they were always just you know Always a bridesmaid, never the bride, so to speak. You know, why did the English wind up, uh, you know, being where they were? Uh, all sorts of great stuff. Uh, Japan, China, all, all sorts of good stuff in there. So I would, I would, I would give that one uh, high marks. High marks. So it sounds like uh, it reminds me of the concept of Pat Buchanan's book about England, about the the fall of the British Empire. Yeah, he definitely covers up. And Pat Buchanan, I'm going to be honest, like. I feel like he has just been so unfortunate to have gotten the wrath that he's gotten. Because if you bring up Pat Buchanan, just in casual conversation to, you know, reasonably educated person, you can be like, isn't he the guy who hates the Jews and stuff? It's like, no, <laughs> like, come on. He, he literally uh, just got the worst rap. And I, I, I just feel like it's, it's been totally unjust because he's been so right about so many things. And some of his books are really good. Um, the one you just referenced and then, uh, the unnecessary war, I think is another good one. Yeah. So. Chur Churchill, Hitler, and the un unnecessary war. It's all about really, it's a, it's the story of just the fall of the British empire. The, the uh, one, one, one that I was going to put up here, cause we've been talking a lot about status here, you know, and a lot about war. This might be a good place to introduce Ralph Rako. Um, this is someone who I know you and I both like, there is a book called great wars, and Great Leaders, A Libertarian Rebuttal. And, you know, the thing about statist historians is if you ask them to rank, just as an example, who are the greatest presidents in American history? There is almost a direct one-to-one -one correlation between the president and the amount of, like, bodies that piled up under their watch. If that makes so sense. So who's number one? Is it always Lincoln? I mean, it's FDR. It's Woodrow Wilson. It's Abraham Lincoln. I mean, it's all people who under their under their auspices, you know, piled up tons and tons of corpses. Uh, status historians just love war because, you know, they love seeing the power of the state expand. And they love thinking about the act the great actor being the state. Um, you know, uh, it reminds me of that, uh, that German historian around the turn of the century who said, you know, the old liberalism is dead, 
you know, the idea of power and of state power and of state autonomy. That is the idea that motivates all great men of our age. You know, you see it in uh, in the Kaiser and in Theodore Roosevelt and in uh, I can't remember the other examples he gave. But basically this idea that, like, look, the individual and their rights that's that's old thinking. You know, what matters now is power and the ability of a state to project power. And that's one of the reasons I pointed out that specific essay by Barbara Tuckman, because this was prior to the period when you had to dress up, you know, your wars of aggression in language of like defending democracy and things of that nature. So you would just have blatant discussions of, you know, we're going to go out conquering uh, for power. Uh, for our for the aggrandizement of our state and often it was racially tinged all you all hear all the time like you know to further the race you know um but ralph rako who's a libertarian historian uh he was at buffalo for years uh he was a, a fellow at the mises institute but he basically just tears these ideas apart like these you know quote unquote great men in these great wars he basically just goes well into detail about how these wars were just ridiculous efforts uh, to, you know, make the the individual leaders and their states, you know, more and more powerful and how these were very avoidable and basically just the folly of them. And I would highly recommend anyone read those. If you are not a big reader, uh, he has a great uh, lecture. This is the only video that I put on here, but it's such a great video and it, it covers a lot of the material that's in that book. It's, it's called the world at war. And if you Google Ralph Rako, the world at war, it's a it's an old Cato Institute talk. It's about three hours long, but it's from way back in the eighties, but it's just a terrific talk. And he goes into a, a lot of that stuff. So one of my other favorite libertarian writers is, um, Speaking of Lincoln is Thomas D. Lorenzo. Oh yeah. If you ever if you ever read any of his oh, yeah. books and he he primary he, he has kind of an axe to the grind. I like it when writers have axes to the grind, you know, because I like character assassinations. Like those are my those are some of my favorite books when someone just goes after a sacred cow. And Tom Thomas D. Lorenzo, he writes um I think he wrote two books on Abraham Lincoln. One is called The Real Abraham Lincoln, and um he just does like a complete uh, character assassination. Basically, he just writes all these things about him taking power, him not giving a crap about any of the slaves, how that was that, that was used as a moral crusade to launch a war that he wanted to launch on the South. It's just, it's a really interesting book. I don't even know if you would put him in the category of historian or economist. I think he's more of an economist, but... A lot of those libertarian guys who came, who come out of like the Mises Institute are primarily economists, right? Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> I, I hadn't really thought about, you know, making the distinction you had raised Thomas Sowell. And I, I did have I did have Murray Rothbard on here um, specifically for, for one for one sort of interesting book, because I feel like especially if you're an American listener, uh, Democrats and Republicans they, they really aren't very different philosophically. I know, uh, you know, sometimes it seems like they're really different. And sometimes certainly Republicans try and talk like they're very different. But really, when you look at the policies, they're not very different. And there's a book called The Betrayal of the American Right. 
and it was written by Murray Rothbard. He never published it. It was published posthumously, but he wrote it way back in the 1970s and just never released it. But it was basically an in-depth look at this subtle transformation that took place inside the American right during the 1930s and 1940s, their time in the wilderness, right? This is the period of democratic dominance, uh, where the idea of like returning to limited government and you know not having the permanent bureaucratic state and stuff like that was all out the window, and so they the, there was basically this fight to get political relevance again. Part of that was uh, seizing on the the Red Scare. That was one of the ways the Republicans were able to gain some kind of uh, purchase on power was attacking Truman for being soft on communism. But when you look at the, the, the ins and outs of the campaign to get Eisenhower the nomination and the, the way that, and who backed Eisenhower and the policies that he adopted, you see that they basically just adopted the New Deal light. They basically accepted all of the premises of the Roosevelt Revolution and it just scaled them back slightly. And that's basically the, what we've been living with today is basically like an echo, but not a real choice. Uh, and if you look at the, the things that were being offered by people like Nye or Taft, like this, this was far closer to someone like uh, if you like Ron Paul, if you were a supporter of his, uh, it's, it's much more recognizable. So I did put that one on there. Um, and then the other one, this was no, the last great. libertarian one that I had on here, was um, Robert Higgs, who is a straight-up historian. Well, uh, Joe, like, let, me, let me stop you real quick. I just want to add something. So a good a book that will be a good companion to that, to Betrayal of the American Right, is uh, Justin Ramondo's book called um, Reclaiming the American Right, Jesus. Mm -hmm. yep, that, yeah, he that tells, is a great he, companion piece, yeah. So in that book, he, he, he kind of... Uh, Basic. I think he wrote the foreword to Betrayal of the American Right, if I'm not mistaken. But, I mean, he heavily references Rothbard in that book. I mean, he was friends with him. And he, um, it's all, I guess he, what he does is he does more of kind of an, like a biography of the different writers who were considered the old right. So those are people like Garrett Garrett, or I don't know if you pronounce it Garrett Garrett, whatever. Um, John Flint, John Flynn, um, he does biographies on them, and he basically kind of chronicles their their rise to relevance and, and really their um, how they're essentially squashed by the new right that comes into power. How how these um, old American firsters is what they used to call themselves um, were were essentially you know brought brought down by kind of the new the new right wing that emerges in the 1950s. So it's 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 um it's a really interesting time. And, and, um, you know, these, you know, the old, right. It's, it's kind of a thing where it's not, I don't think anyone called themselves the right or the old, right. At the time, it's kind of a label that was given after the fact, right? Essentially they were just kind of like a loose opposition of writers and, and, and figures who were, um, against the empire and against a lot of the new deal po policies. Yeah, I mean, these were the guys who opposed NATO. They opposed the Cold War. They opposed the formation of the military-industrial complex. And as you said, they were a loose coalition. And politics is organized contact sport. I mean, it's 
it is a question of who can organize and effectively exert control on the system. And, uh, you know, when you look at the highly corporatist, uh, organized influential groups who quickly coalesced behind Eisenhower and pushed for him and pushed for the adoption of certain policies. It's certainly not confusing why things worked out the way they did, even though you can be regretful of how it worked out. Um, because certainly it, it, it very much, you know, just, uh, following the debt ceiling debate right now, you know, it's, it's clear there's really no, no way back. I mean, so there was a choice at one point, but that's all gone. But this might be a good moment to bring in Robert Higgs, Crisis and Leviathan. This is a great book here for everyone out there who's wondering, how did the government get so much power? Well, the answer is they exploited war and national emergency. And if you were born in the 1990s or, you know, 1980s, you probably have very vivid memories of September 11th. Uh, you know, if you were politically conscious at the time, you know, you'll remember passage of things like the Patriot Act. You'll remember revelations about the NSA spying on us all, you know, all that great stuff. Um, you know, that was basically just an excuse to rip up the Bill of Rights. Um, this is not unusual. World War One, that was, a, you know, the chance to pass just these hideous, hideous bills that made it, you know, a crime to even speak out against the government's policy of going to war. Um, the draft, I mean, they created the draft. Um, income taxes, I mean, all this crazy stuff that was completely foreign to the American experience. So, I mean, the old saying, you know, war is the health of the state. You know, the state made war or the war made the state and the state makes war. I mean, it is a self-reinforcing process. And uh, so Crisis in Leviathan by Robert Higgs is a detailed account of all the all the basically episodes in the American experiment where war led to the further empowerment of central authorities and the infringement, uh, you know, of people's liberties. Uh, and this goes all the way back basically to the founding. I mean, you had... Uh, Right away, uh, people claiming national, you know, security reasons for clamping down on free speech, on free immigration. This going back to the 1790s, uh, and then of course the War of 1812, for example. The War of 1812 convinces Jefferson uh, and his people to drop opposition to the to the rechartering of a central bank. You know, uh, so it's it's pretty incredible stuff, and it's it's a good read. Um, yeah, so national emergency, may, you know, it, it, people are, are willing, more willing in those moments to, to hand over power to the government, and Crisis in Leviathan is, is, a, is a good book for that. So Here's my list right now that we, we've developed. So we got Eric Hobsbawm, we got Barbara Tuckman, we got Paul Kennedy, we got Ralph Rako, we got Murray Rothbard. We have, I guess we have uh, an asterisk next to, to Pat Buchanan because Pat Buchanan, I guess, is more, he's a speechwriter who more pundit type, but I don't know. I think the line between historian and um, and um, non-historian is not, I mean, there, obviously there's a line between them, but certainly th people like journalists and other writers can write really good history books as well. So I don't know if you want to include them in the, in the, uh, in the, uh, in the group right now or, yeah, or I have not no problem. I have no problem with that. I mean, it's good revisionist history there. And I feel like I've, I've got a good, uh, a good wide range of, of writers here and, you know, people can take from it what they will. I mean, 
I feel like it is intellectually cowardly to not read things just because you disagree with a person or with their perspective on things. Uh, I just don't think it's very intellectually rigorous. Obviously, if you have only time to read one book, maybe you don't want to read a book where you know you're going to be disagreeing with them. Uh, uh, you know, on every point or virtually every point. I don't know if anyone who listens to this podcast is, uh, you know, a dyed in the wool, you know, neocon. I, I find that hard to believe, but, um, yeah. So we get, we get I, people I from have, all shapes, no all opinion. political backgrounds who listen to this show. It's, so. it's, it's quite interesting that we'll get, um, we'll, we'll get people who are, um, you know, very libertarian. We'll get people who are straight up commies. We'll get people who are, you know, kind of run of the mill liberal Democrats. We got people who are run of the mill general Republicans. There's not that many people who are like true neoconservatives. I guess when you say neoconservative, I guess when the technical term is, is, is more so like the, it's like, you know, one click of people, you know what I mean? Um, it's like a, it's like a couple of dozen, dozen of people. Um, there's not that many people, I think, like it, just like your average American, they may believe in American ex- uh, exceptionalism, but I don't think they like really think hard about, they're not like thinking about it, how neoconservatives are doing it. You know what I mean? Thank God for that. <laughs> they're not like, well, we need to project American power across Taiwan to make sure, like, to, they're not, they're not thinking of that. They're really just thinking as far as, I mean, the people who are who these neoconservative uh, policies, what, what, like the people they try to convince to to support these are are kind of more like the proles from 1984. You know, the people who they know will support or uh be persuaded by crude patriotism in the words of orwell um so i don't there's not that much intellectual thought or when it goes when i think when it goes into it like when i was younger and when i was you know i was obviously i'm from new york and um i knew people who died in 9-11 I was like, fuck yeah, let's go into Iraq. Of course they had a connection to 9-11. They're Arab, right? Like, wasn't it the Arabs who did it? Didn't really think twice about that or the fallacies in it. But then again, I was a, I was, uh, a kid when, when, when those thoughts were going in my head. But um, I kind of imagine the same thing goes on with most conflicts. And that's why it's so easy to persuade people to, uh, to support wars even when they've never really thought about them before. Yeah, I, I, I certainly think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, you, you have to, you have to remember that, that most people are just going about their day. Uh, do not touch. I mean, this is like just statistically true. Like only like 13% of Americans, like say they've read a book in the last year, you know, who are over the age of like 30, you know, like it's just a fact that there's very limited, um, there's very limited time in people's days, and uh, there are a lot of things that are competing for their time. And uh, reading revisionist histories to understand the ways in which we were manipulated uh, to get us into war, especially because if you if you just turn on, you know, the quote unquote news, you know, you can literally hear, or if you open the paper, I read, you know, the corporate press every single day. 
you can literally just read these outrageous rationalizations to this day for going into Iraq. Like it wasn't all based on a lie. Like they don't even bat an eye about that stuff. You know, and if someone like Donald Trump says, you know, tweets, uh, Colin Powell was a liar and a scumbag for getting us into Iraq, the whole story becomes what a mean guy Trump is. You know, and it's completely forgotten that, you know, oh, wow, that is actually true. So not to dive down that rabbit hole too much, but I just do think that the the deck is very much stacked against, uh, you know, the sort of reflective things that uh, if you read. Uh, well, actually, this is a good a good a good introduction here. Uh, this is a book about the making of the United States and specifically its constitution. Uh, the idea that you needed to have a well-educated and deliberative electorate who were concerned with restraining the power of their elected representatives, uh, you know, to make sure that they weren't pursuing uh, heedless conflicts and things like that. Uh, that's just not what we have. Ever wondered what it's like to be in the room with top Al-Qaeda terrorists plotting their next move? Do you want to know how the history of Islamic fundamentalist thought informs the way the world works today? Well then, dear listener, Conflicted is the podcast for you. I trace the epic battles between Muslims and the West. What are the Houthis' objectives in the Red Sea? It's a lesson to the rest of the Muslim world and the Arab world. Do not trust the Islamists. Hosted by me, Thomas Small, an author and filmmaker, and my good friend, Eamon Dean, an ex-Al-Qaeda jihadi turned MI6 spy, Conflicted tells stories of the Islamic past and present to help you make sense of the world today. And now Conflicted Season 5 is being cooked up, coming to you very soon. And in the meantime, you can sign up to our Conflicted community to give you bonus episodes and access to our community hub on Discord. Subscribe to Conflicted wherever you get your podcasts. So, and, uh, yeah. And it's, I think especially, you know, there's just there's been such a, a wall put up between uh, the civilian population and the consequences of our foreign interventions over the last 30 years that uh, there's just not, you know, it wasn't Vietnam. 80,000 guys didn't get killed, you know, like 4,000 guys got killed over 20 years, you know, and taxes weren't raised. Taxes were cut repeatedly. You know, it was all thrown on the credit card. You know, no one had to go buy bonds or ration. It's just, it's different. The, the way that the wars have been fought, the population has been very insulated from their, their effects. And, and so I do certainly worry that they've gotten used to just ignoring foreign policy and just kind of nodding along to whatever, uh, you know, sort of right sounding platitudes about democracy and, you know, rules and things like that sound good. And, you know, just get on with your day. Uh, even though it's it's quite dangerous, especially when you talk about uh, a potential conflict over Taiwan, you know. So, but the the book that I was going to point out is it's called. It's it, actually there's two books here. Both of them are are from the Oxford series on American history, and I actually think these are are pretty okay. And I'm not going to go into each of these books because they're each written by a different historian who brings different things to the table, and they they by no means bring the same perspective to it, but. This one is called The Framers' Coup, The Making of the United States Constitution. It's written by Michael J. Klarman. And it is, I mean, it's a, these are all real stout books. I mean, these are ones you just take on vacation with you here. But goodness, it is just phenomenally detailed. And uh, it, boy, 
the 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 actual ins and outs of how the constitution was created and ratified uh are really laid bare it's it's really interesting i mean it was essentially just uh, a totally uh you know quote unquote unconstitutional process you know that 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 was that was used to throw out the articles of confederation is, is essentially why he uh, calls it a coup but uh and then the other one this is this is just a good primer for anyone who so, so Michael, so Michael Klarman, and what's the book, what's the book title? It's it's the Framers' Coup: The Making of the U.S. Constitution. Um, of course, uh, listeners are probably generally aware that the Articles of Confederation were proving uh, cumbersome to those who wanted the United States to be a, a unitary entity, one capable of projecting its power uh, to defend its interests. Uh, for example, they couldn't raise troops, couldn't get money. I mean, they had to actually ask the states for them, like, will you give them to us? And if the state said no, there was not, there was literally nothing the government could do about it. Uh, and so this this is basically uh, an argument that you know people like Madison recognized that, gosh, we're not going to survive. Uh, this is all just going to collapse and fall apart. Uh, at least that was that was his belief, and and this thing is meticulously researched, and 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 the the, the end notes are full of fabulous reading, um, and and the other one, this is also from the Oxford series of American history. This is a primer on on U.S. foreign relations, and this was one of the first books that got handed to me when I started studying uh, U.S. Uh, foreign policy in school. It's by um, it's from it's called From Colony to Superpower. And it's written by George C. Herring, U.S. Foreign Relations since 1776. And again, it's it's a it's an absolutely massive 800-page book. Actually, this one's a thousand pages. Um, so I mean, it's it's very serious, but you know. And it's again, this is very mainstream history stuff. But I also feel like neither of those books that I just recommended have any problem with saying uncomfortable things about what the United States was doing or why, you know, for example, uh, when Herring has to talk about the U S conquest of Cuba and the Philippines, he very much just spells out what it was for, what it was about, uh, lays out the arguments that took place in Congress, just very matter of factly. Uh, you know, he certainly, is of the opinion, personally, ideologically, that the United States needed to be engaged in the world, but he does not shy away from presenting the debates as they occurred. And so I, I certainly appreciate uh, that, because I feel like it's one thing to have an opinion about those things. It's another thing to let that color entirely your presentation of the facts, uh, because this was certainly a war of choice and a war of aggression. Uh, just as the war uh, against Mexico was, which he also describes as precisely that. Uh, so, which you know, I you know this happened almost two hundred years ago. You know, I, I don't. My blood does not boil at any of this stuff. I just feel like if we're going to teach this and learn about it, uh, you know, best to have it the way it was. Um, so yeah, that was George Herring from Colony to Superpower: U.S. Foreign Relations since 1776, uh, and that's those are both from Oxford University Press. Um, they 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 actually have some really good. Uh, um, Gordon Wood wrote one of the books. Uh, I believe his was called Empire of Liberty, and his book covers 
specifically the uh, the Jeffersonian period. Um, but there, it, there's a whole series of books um, running right up into the into the present. Um, I guess the the last two that I had picked out here, um, I, I did have one or two other perfect, ones. Perfect, because we have it will end yeah. at ten. It'll be perfect. Yeah, uh, these are two books that talk about uh, race and the making of nations. We the love talking one, about race on this show. I'm joking. Yeah, we don't talk well, about race. <laughs> these are two, I think, really great books. Making Race and Nation, and it's a comparative study of the United States, South Africa, and Brazil. And it was written by Anthony W. Marks. And he's actually written a bunch of really good books on this stuff, um, basically looking at how racialized regimes were constructed. Obviously, uh, ra- those those types of regimes are very prevalent, and he, he basically does a comparative study. I, I like comparative studies personally, and that's why the second one is called uh, Disenfranchising Democracy, Constructing the Electorate in the United States, the United Kingdom, and France uh, by David A. Bateman. So uh, it's really interesting stuff. Really interesting stuff. Um, certainly, I think it's stuff that just needs to be addressed forthrightly. I, I don't think there's any need to... Uh, I don't know. I don't really understand a lot of the 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 debates, the acrimony in the debates, uh, in the United States today. I just feel like there's, there's a basic unwillingness to just say, you know, (laughs) to just say what happened. Uh, both sides apparently have very strong feelings about things that happened hundreds of years ago. You know, some of the consequences of which are still apparent today. I, I don't think acknowledging the history necessarily commits you to any specific public policy choices. Uh, but I do think that the fact that we have that we aren't able to have open and constructive conversations about this is in some way a, a product of the fact that the history that we read is so bad. Um, so these are two good books. Those are both by Cambridge University Press. Um, I think those are both both very solid books. So. So we have so we have. Uh, is, it, is Andrew Marks? Anthony, Anthony, Anthony Marks. Marks. And if you had to pick one of them, I would pick that one. Uh, he's just a terrific writer, and uh, he just he does a great job. He does an absolutely great job. And and the United States, South Africa, and Brazil have really uh, similar yet uh, subtly different racialized hierarchies that they constructed. And and this was just a great. I read this book several times actually uh, when I was doing some of my early graduate work. Um, it's just a very, you know, it's just, it's interesting because, you know, these things, uh, you know, how did they come to be that way? You know, it's just, you know, it revolved structures and, you know, they had antecedents here and there and certain decisions were made here and there for certain reasons, you know, and, and that's it, you know, so. It's, it's worth knowing. Even, I mean, even if something comes off as like uncomfortable to read, it's worth just understanding these perspectives. That's how I feel too. I mean, it is uncomfortable to read some of these things. I mean, but I just feel like if you're only going to read things that don't make you uncomfortable, that's just not intellectually honest. Well, don't they say, wasn't there a study that, that uh, concluded that when somebody reads something that goes against their worldview, they get physically sick or something? They get like a physical repulsion? There's a there's a book right back there, Jonathan Haidt. 
who's a psychologist called The Righteous Mind. He has a bunch of data on that about how people's brains react to hearing information that's contrary to their to their beliefs. And yeah, just all sorts of uh, negative things start happening in their brains chemically. Uh, I'll admit, I, I have I have a lamentable science background. I, economist, political scientist, and historian. So when they start talking about, uh, you know, chemical reactions in the brain, my eyes sort of glaze over. I can't really remember any of that human physiology well, stuff, but it, it is true. People do have very deep chemical, uh, psychological reactions to reading things that, uh, you know, violate certain, uh, certain stories that they hold in their heads. I mean, I, I experience the same thing. I'll read, if I read something that I really disagree with, the same reaction will happen in my brain. And it's always, it always has happened in my brain. Like I, if I read something I really disagree with, I'll just be like, fuck this, this fucking person. Like Jesus. Um, and I'll have that same reaction. And I think I've had to pull, I've had to kind of, uh, close my, like, you know, um, clinch my nose a couple times and kind of read through it and discover that there was actually substance in Kate in some cases. So this, you just gotta read what you just gotta read things. Even if, even if it pisses you off to read it. I think the first time I started listening to Scott Horton, I was like, who the hell is this guy, Scott Horton? And then I was, um, you know, the more I listened to him, the more I read him, I was like, Oh, this guy's absolutely right. Um, so, so we got 10, so we got, a good list of more than 10 historians. So we have at least 10,000 pages for everyone to read at this point, right? I or tried to put something on there for, for, tens for of any, potential, of pages. any potential reader. My books. These are all very good books in their own, in their own right. So some nice, some nice, some nice books that are about 600, uh, 600 to a thousand pages long. Um, oh but yeah, those they are, are, aren't they? <laughs> no, I I think those are great, and obviously these are books you're not going to read in one summer. But it's a, these are books that you can pick any one of these books that you you know that you're interested in, and you know spend three weeks reading it. And you know the thing about reading is most people don't read, and I go through periods where I don't where where um you know I I don't read very much. I'll go through periods where I read you know a couple hours every day. It's um, it's kind of like a muscle. You just got to keep on doing it. And you get better at reading, and then if you stop reading for a long time, it's harder to get into it. It's 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 odd, but uh, it's always worth like starting with fiction as well. If you like fiction, like reading fiction, and we could probably have a whole other conversation about um about fiction. Um, something I wanted to when you were talking about Barbara Tuckman about the fragmentation of Europe, I wanted to start start talking about the Saxon stories. You ever read those or ever hear of those? Uh, no. So the Saxon stories are, they're a book series about this guy called Uhtred of Babelbomb. Babel it's, it's about the Danish invasion of England in the 800s. And um, it's a fictional, it's, it's historical fiction. And um, it's just about all the fragmentation in England and how different kings, like King Edward's in it. And... Um, or, or no, King Alfred's in it, and yeah, his son King Edward's in it as well. And they're trying to turn um, um, uh, Wessex into into basically modern day England. And then there's you know these 
badass battles that go on between the Saxons and the Vikings who are invading. It's it's they're really fun books to read, and they made a really good show on them too called The Last Kingdom that's on Netflix. So um, that's something that can just like kind of spruce up your maybe your your uh, desire to to read uh to read more history uh, starting with historical fiction because it's always fun. But I, I think w- the books that you see that sell the most on history are like um like the Bill O'Reilly books, killing you know killing Lincoln or killing the Rising Sun. I mean, I I just about everyone I know has not everyone, but a lot of I know a lot of like normal kind of average Joe guys who've read uh killing uh killing the rising sun. You know, like have you seen this read this book about how bad the Japanese were? Um so like that kind of that that very pop history, those are the books that sell well. Yeah, but I, also, I can remember I can remember my grandpa bringing those to me and saying like here you want to read these and <laughs> i i'm not i i grew up in a in a very conservative household as you said you know we support the president you know if he's killing people in iraq it's because they did 9-11 that sort of stuff and we're we're the same age so i was you know 11 years old when this was going on and i just remember i hated bill o'reilly like from the television i just hated him like i just thought this is the most obnoxious guy you know, like I just did not like Bill O'Reilly. He just rubbed me the wrong way, even as a kid, <laughs> which now I look at cable news pundits and I'm like, oh, please bring back the very gentlemanly Bill O'Reilly, please. <laughs> uh, you don't know how good you had it, I guess. Now I, I, can't, I can hardly watch. I can hardly watch cable news anymore. It's so bad. His, his next book is going to be called Killing Tucker. Killing Tucker Carlson. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there, here's one more question. I know you, I know I kept, I kept you over the hour. Um, but I want to ask you one more question and that is, it's kind of, do you think that there's a difference between, well, there, there obviously is a difference, but well, preferences, do you think there's a difference between British historians and American historians? And if there's a difference what do you think makes them different in their styles? Well, I would say that the British have the, the certainly the, in the 20th century, I will say 20th century historians. Yes, I would say that the British are generally better uh, because they've lived the tragedy. They have the they have the wisdom of having gained and lost it all, whereas the Americans were just riding the wave and it was still just a boatload of optimism, and now it's just resistance. It's just resistance to the decline and fall that has already been experienced by the British. And so certainly when you read British historians, not to mention they're just more worldly. Americans are so closed. I mean, like, just just ask the average American, which you live in New York, so maybe you would have more of a skewed sample, but you know, just the average European, which I have family that lives in Italy and, and all over the place, they speak multiple languages, no question. All of them. Uh, how many Americans do you know that speak anything other than English, right? I mean, I'm sitting here in middle America, and it's very tough to find anyone who speaks any other languages at all, uh, who can even point to places like Sudan on a map or, uh, you know, Malaysia, whereas the British uh, were schooled to have great pride in the empire, and uh, to know about the empire, they had Empire Day, 
right? And so they were very worldly and very well educated. And they had a lot of emphasis on the classics as well, uh, which gives, again, a lot of depth and perspective. And so I just think that uh, the, the British historians were just coming from a uh, a more worldly and more well-read background. And they also carried with it a lot of the experience and a lot of the tragedy of having fought these wars, especially World War One, which was just, um, I mean, that that was the war that, as you know, that, that was really the war that destroyed the British Empire. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Um, and it was just so unnecessary. And, uh, I mean, it killed so many of their colleagues and classmates. And I think something like 40% of... You know, uh, I forget which which school was of of the class was was just wiped out right there. You know, and so living with that with that kind of death and experience and you know meaningless loss uh, really tends to give one a more contemplative uh, air to them. So yeah, I do think there is a difference between British and American historians. Uh, one is far superior to the other. Yeah, I I had a feeling I didn't know what your what your um, answer was going to be on that. I get the general sense that British historians are are better, and and um, at least in terms of just being objective historians. Now, I'm not saying American there aren't good American historians because there are there are plenty, but it's just that I don't I I feel like just to start you know from the beginning. You're not going to get that many holistic worldviews like Eric Hobsbawm and his trilogy than um, in, in America. Like I feel it. I feel like it really takes a Brit to write that book. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, it's it's really a, uh, and he he of course came from a very cosmopolitan background and had lived all over the place and had family in the foreign service and things like that. And you know, again, uh, Americans just kind of view history as starting with themselves. I mean, like if you pick up an American history textbook, uh, you know, or if you've set foot, I spent some time in in the in the public high schools teaching. I mean, just the way uh, you, you the children are, or I mean, they're. They're basically, you know, getting ready to be adults. I mean, their their knowledge of world history, quote unquote, is just absolutely deplorable. Uh, and so, of course, it's it's not not surprising at all. Um, and even even in at the upper level, even if you're unless you're like a Ph.D. or, you know, going and doing advanced graduate work in, in history, a lot of the courses, if you, you know, you're just a history major in college are still going to be heavily skewed toward uh, American history. Um it's just the way it is. Uh, I mean, there are there are probably some some reasons we could get into for that, but yeah. 
I don't know. Of, there's just well, there's 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 this view of like history is starting with the founding of the United States and everything before that was just a mistake. Well, you know? a, lot, a, a lot of the history that's a lot of the history courses that are new to colleges now are like, you know, they're, they're kind of based off social justice grievances. So you'll get like a lot of uh, like African-American history. You'll get a lot of um, just like kind of any minority in the U.S. history. Like those classes, have be, those have like the highest growth percentage um, from what I've seen. I guess you're more yeah, involved in like the is, university system than I am. I was well. I was also just thinking about the fact that if if you're if you're a Britisher, you know, I mean, your history goes back to the time of the Romans. So when you're taught your history, you have to learn it in conjunction with other historical events, like you mentioned, Danish invention, the invasion, the Norman invasion, you know, all those different things. Like those are all part of your story, and so you have to understand. Like I, I wrote a paper for the um, the Journal of the American Revolution a couple of years ago about how the American Revolution would not even have been possible or successful uh, without some I can't uh, without the without the partition of Poland having occurred just before that you know and I got a lot of like what what are you talking about so even among you know American historians there's just a total absence of knowledge about what was going on in the rest of the world at the time. So it's far from unusual, I suppose. Well, I got to read that. I got to read that paper. The American Revolution um, wouldn't have been possible without the partition of Poland. Um, Okay, so I'll let you go. I know I've kept you longer than I was supposed to. So I really do appreciate it. Um, You're really helping out with uh, with with my schedule right now as far as, you know, putting out content next week. So really appreciate it. Um, Joe, uh, as always, Please let everyone know where they can find your work. And about the new book you're writing as well. Aren't you writing a book oh, about China? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that's – thank you. Uh, it's good to be here with you. I'm happy to help you. I know you have a lot of exciting things going on in life right now. I really wish you all the best. Uh, always here to talk, uh, you know, even just about, you know, personal things, fatherhood, things of that nature. Uh, no, uh, I'm actually at the Libertarian Institute now. Uh, I finished a book called the fake China threat and it's very real danger. It's coming out this year. Um, and then I, I don't know, I've got a bunch of different things going on, but I suppose I can just leave it at that for now. So you can follow me on Twitter. I I post all my things there. I, I do podcasts and do articles and journal pieces and various things. (laughs) I'm sorry if I sound tired. (laughs) It's, it's, all, it's all good. I will be joining you on the, uh, and, uh, I'm tired too, as you could tell, <laughs> but all right, Joe, thanks so much, man. Um, always a pleasure. We'll talk again soon. And, um, yeah, I can't wait for the book. Okay. Thanks a lot, Henry. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. You too. how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own 
Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.